For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. It's the Tennessee Star Report with Michael Patrick Leahy. Call and be heard. 615-737-9522 or 1-800-688-9522. 800-688-WLAC. Now, here's Michael Patrick Leahy. 6.06 a.m. broadcasting live from our studios on Music Row in Nashville, Tennessee. We are delighted to be joined on our newsmaker line by Dr. Michael Rechtenwald, former professor of liberal studies and global uh, global liberal studies at NYU from 2008 to 2019. He has a Ph.D. from Carnegie Mellon, author of Thought Criminal, Beyond Woke, The Google Archipelago, and Springtime for Snowflakes, Social Justice and Its Postmodern Parentage, now, if that's not enough, he is now the chief academic officer for a new organization called American Scholars on the web at americanscholars.com. Good morning, Dr. Rechtenwald. Good morning. Nice to be here. How are you, Mike? I am so glad to have you on once again. You know, you are, I'll just say this for our listening audience, you are one of the bravest members of academia in modern American history. And I salute you for all that you've done to advance the cause of intellectual honesty. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I'm trying. I'm doing my best. <laughs> we, I can relate. We're all just doing our best. So, Michael, um, American Scholars on the web at americanscholars.com is described as a pro-American education platform Members will learn American constitutional values from any time lessons and forum discussions led by top university professors. Uh, you're the chief academic officer. Uh, when did this start, and, and how can people participate in AmericanScholars.com? It started, we, we started uh, putting together the whole platform and uh, the hiring the faculty about, you know, four four months ago, and we're ready to launch on Ju July 4th. We're launching on Independence Day. I love that. Yeah. So, so it's time to claim, claim your your academic and educational independence. Yeah. Now, uh, I, if you go to AmericanScholars.com right now today, you just see the one, you know, uh, web uh, page. But I guess uh, right. on the 4th, which is just three days from today, the 4th of July, you you have a more robust site. You'll be able to sign up and you'll go into a forum where people are discussing uh, all these issues of relevance today, like critical race theory, and people will be able to organize, congregate, uh, and then also talk with the top professors on all the issues that are plaguing us today. 
critical race theory, big tech censorship, uh, socialism and the way the free market is being run down and uh, overcome by socialism. All of that is we'll have top professors there talking with you about all those issues and giving you expert advice and also soon anytime lessons in, in various areas like history, American history, constitutional principles, uh, big tech censorship, uh, critical race theory, you name it. Now, um, whose idea was American Scholars? Who were the founders of it? And what's a form of organization? It's a, it's a partnership, and it was founded by Matt Paul, P-O-H-L. And uh, he's a former uh, academic uh, advisor and uh, admissions officer at the University of Penn. So, uh, and then we have a, a tech, a technology person who wants to remain anonymous because he's still involved in high big tech and uh, he's afraid it'll be canceled. Uh, and he's another principal. And then myself, we're the three principals. And uh, we've hired faculty members and we have a board of directors. And uh, so uh, we're, we're a partnership and we've launched, uh, we're launching on the 4th to bring all this to people, uh, to bring non-indoctrinating education to people, plus giving sleep, uh, parents who are dealing with critical race theory in the schools a place to congregate, to organize, to get completely you know, up to speed on how to counter all this. And uh, if, if, are you able to finance this all from your own investments? Do you need, is it a nonprofit? How do people support this financially? Well, when, when the four, on the 4th, you'll be able to sign up for as little as $5. You can be on the platform. And then you'll have an opportunity to donate additional money at the same time to help support us because we're, we're basically we're bootstrapping this entirely on our own. I can relate. Um, yeah. We're going to help uh, you, and uh, we'll talk I, offline. We'll, we'll, we'll do some banner ads and maybe some other advertisements uh, to support your great efforts at americanscholars.com when we come back we'll have more with professor michael rechtenwald the chief academic officer of americanscholars.com just uh, stay with us we'll be back right after this on michael patrick lay he's michael rechtenwald Tennessee Star Report with your host, Michael Patrick Lane. Text 18 a.m. Joined on our newsmaker line by Dr. Michael Rechtemald, the chief uh, prolific author and defender of free speech and the American idea uh, and the chief academic officer of American Scholars on the web at AmericanScholars.com, which will launch on the 4th of July. Now, what kind of reaction have you gotten uh, Michael, from the academic community when you've asked them to be part of this pro-education, pro-American education platform? Well, I was very surprised that I've gotten hundreds of applications from professors all over the country working at top institutions, people that are just so fed up with what's happening in academia uh, that they were more than, I mean, just so eager to participate. Of course, we couldn't hire them all, but 
we had amazing people come forth. That's so, a surprise uh, to me as well. Yes, apparently there's a, there's a lot of people out there hiding, you know, basically trying to keep their heads down and hopefully don't get, you know, they don't get canceled. So, you know, but they're they're willing to come forth and teach for our platform and that's been really very encouraging. Will they use uh, pseudonyms or their real names? They'll they'll use their real names because we want to, you know, show for sure that these people are scholars that have credentials and they're teaching at top institutions throughout the country. Will they face repercussions from their current institutions? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, they shouldn't because all we're doing is teaching. uh, You know, we're just delivering education without indoctrination. I mean, if that's a problem, then we'll see what, you know, what happens. But that would be a real, a real problem. That means that we're facing a real crisis worse than I thought. Are they, uh, who is your customer? The customer is basically adults uh, 18 and up who are either homeschooling their children or or dealing with school districts, parents that are trying to uh, teach their children, uh, you know, American values and to try to counter the indoctrination that's going on in the schools or else supporting their homeschooling, and uh, college-age students as well. So parents of, of K-12 through students plus college students. Do you anticipate at some time uh, moving this into a, a degree-granting institution? Well, we're looking at certificates first so that you could get a certificate in dis- different areas like business or, you know, um, economics or uh social studies or, or what have you, so that, you know, because right now, as, as it is, the degree is becoming worthless, uh, thanks to them basically, you know, canceling grades. No, yep, yep. Uh, everything is racist, and therefore, basically, you just get either passed through or, you know, all you have to do is prove that you're woke, and that's, that's counted as education today. So we think certificates are going to be valuable in the future. And there's a possibility if once we get really rolling that we could go for accreditation and give degree. Well, I'm going to introduce you uh, uh, via email after this program uh, airs with a good friend of mine, a fellow by the name of Bob Luddy, L-U-D-D-Y. He's the chief executive officer and founder of Captive Air. It's a North Carolina-based company. It's the leading provider of commercial heating and ventilation equipment to restaurants in the country. He founded, uh, about 10 years ago, a a school of K-12 private schools called Thales Academy. They use direct instruction and classical instruction. And uh, uh, they're opening a college, uh, an accredited college called Thales College in North Carolina in the fall, I think the two of you would mesh very well. That's excellent. Yeah, we're, we were open to partnerships like that for sure. Absolutely. We could provide the online version of, uh, of a college education like that and be kind of, that's happening anyway in many universities. Uh, they're, they're, hiring, they're hiring or subcontracting out uh, online education to various uh, entities. So that would really be a great partnership. Um, I also would like to ask you 
uh, if you are familiar with any academics who are working in the area of entrepreneurship, small business formation, and I'll tell you why. Because I've seen, and many uh, people in small business have seen over the past decade, but accelerating over the past year, what it appears to be a concerted effort uh, by large corporations and uh, the, the, the federal government in many cases to overwhelm and crush small businesses uh, through huge regulations that only large corporations can comply with and various restrictive banking and financial regulations. Are you familiar with that general area? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've been studying this issue quite a bit, and we do have professors in our on-deck circle, basically, that are able to teach entrepreneurship, and uh, that's been one of the key focuses, and it'll be coming up soon. We won't start open with that kind of instruction, but we're going to have it on on there very soon, and uh, I'm very familiar with the issue. Uh, this is a kind of monopolization that's happening. They're trying to consolidate all all economic activity into these particular favored corporate players, and they're using things like ESG scores and uh, that's environmental, social, and governance scores in order to basically stave off all the competition, force all investments to these major pro- uh, players. And you saw this with the COVID crisis response, the way that small businesses were crushed by the uh, lockdowns and so forth. So, yeah, there's a concerted effort to destroy middle-class entrepreneurship without a question. Yeah, and when did you see that beginning uh, yourself? Well, I started seeing it in about 2019, to be honest. And I wrote a book about it called Google Archipelago. It's one of the themes of that book is that there's this kind of new consolidation I call corporate socialism, where they're trying to create monopolies, corporate monopolies on top, and basically everybody else on universal basic income uh, beneath. They don't want the thriving middle class. When I say they, that's the, the elite, the power elite, in connection with the Democratic Party. They're trying to drive out small business and put everybody basically on the dole or else just working for those corporations. But entrepreneurship is at great peril right now. Have we seen evidence of decline in small businesses, increases in small business failures? Yes. I mean, uh, the, the Foundation for Economic Education said that with the COVID crisis, 50% of small businesses uh, were charted to fail, uh, to, to close forever. And of those, 60% have already closed permanently. So we lost millions of small businesses. And um, I don't know that this was a concerted effort, but it's certainly working that direction, a direction which I had seen already, you know, being taken in the first place before the COVID crisis, but which is was accelerated by that crisis. And small businesses have been the driving force of, of personal liberty, and of economic expansion in, and innovation throughout American history, what would be the consequences of the decline of small business in America? What it would be would be basically, you're right, liberties are connected to our, our financial independence. So you'd have basically a kind of a surf class who's beholden to, you know, 
these large corporations who are in collusion with the state in order to basically, you know, mandate certain types of behavior. You'd even see the possibility of social credit scores coming in where you can't do anything without being approved through a socio-economic political uh, credit scoring system. And right now the uh, federal government's trying to take over the credit reporting system as it is. They've just floated a bill in order to get rid of the credit reporting services so that this, this, the government will be in charge of who gets loans and who doesn't. Yeah, that sounds like a wonderful idea, not. Uh, Dr. Michael Rechtenwald, let me once again salute you for your leadership and your courage in academia. Really appreciate it. Come back again and join us, if you would, please. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mike. You're very welcome. We'll be back with more after this. This is the Tennessee Star Report. I'm Michael Patrick Leahy. Welcome back to the Tennessee Star Report with your host, Michael Patrick Leahy. We built a wall that was not a wall that anybody could get through. We had very few breakthroughs, unbelievably few. Just the only breakthrough is let them walk around to the few open areas where you have, uh, we had problems on land disputes, et cetera, et cetera. All of those problems were resolved. So we got them resolved. So you could have completed the wall. Well, there's President Trump stating the obvious that uh, this disaster of the Biden administration is leading to a debacle, not only in Texas, but around the country, as they are failing to enforce our immigration laws. That, to me, is an impeachable offense, by the way. Now, that will go nowhere in terms of uh, this current House of Representatives, which initiates impeachment, because uh, the, the Democrats are all in lockstep, they think apparently it's a wonderful idea to destroy the country by not enforcing immigration laws. I think differently. I think that uh, we are, a, if we can make it, if we can last until November 2022, I think there's going to be a huge change in Washington. I think the uh, the Republicans are likely to take over the House. And I think as soon as they take over the House, you will see impeachment proceedings begin. And uh, there's probably three targets for that, in my view. Number one uh, is uh, 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 the director of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, who seems to be actively doing everything to contravene American immigration rules and laws. And then, of course, Kamala Harris, as vice president, who's joining in and and uh, President Biden. These guys are all violating their constitutional duty. Now, it will be interesting. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to be an interesting three-and-a-half-year period as we see the challenges to the legitimacy of uh, the Biden administration continue to grow and grow and grow. In Georgia, uh, last night, the Secretary of State down there, Brad Raffensperger, uh, declared that he th he wanted the state of Georgia to take over the administration of elections in Fulton County, Georgia, just because of all the evidence he's found of, of improper management of the election in 2020. Now, 
the the big question for Raffensburger is seven and a half months after the election, you're finding all these problems of mismanagement, in my view, more than enough to uh, to throw the results out in the same way, in the very same way, at least in the certification process, in the same way that right now the city of New York has such a debacle on its hands that they've instituted this ranked choice voting and it was an absolute disaster because they added 135,000 test ballots um, uh, to the counting, which should not have been included. They're in the, they're being sued right now today, as we speak by Eric Adams, the black candidate, uh, former pol- uh, police captain who was in the lead uh, before these phony ballots were added. And it, that lead virtually evaporated. I don't see at all how they can do anything in the state of New York uh, but throw that those results out and have a do-over. I don't see that at all. In You saw in some testimony by some election workers in Fulton County at an event in Alpharetta, Georgia, on Monday night uh, where there were some al- some claims and allegations that similar test balloting problems occurred in Fulton County in addition to all of the chain of custody problems that took place. I mean, huge chain of custody problems. Now, the pr- the problem we have as a country right now is this. We do have a legal process by which we select a president. A- and we're stuck, it would appear, because the people who were supposed to do their legal duty uh, in that process failed to do it. And we've talked about this many a time, but every new piece of information that we see highlights the, the, the certainty in my mind that in Georgia for, in particular, it was a huge error on the part of Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to certify the election results there, giving 16 Electoral College votes to Joe Biden in a state that Biden was certified as a victor by less than 12,000 votes, when there are thousands and th- hundreds of thousands of chain of custody documents for uh, uh, absentee ballots deposited in drop boxes that, that have not been produced seven and a half months later. Uh, it, it was a, as the Georgia GOP said, it was a dereliction of duty by the Secretary of State in uh, Georgia, it was a dereliction of duty for him to certify the election results prior to having reviewed all of the chain of custody documents for the absentee ballots. And by the way, just so you know, there is a Supreme Court case coming down today. It's called Brnovich, the uh, Democratic National Committee. Uh, They're going to announce the results here shortly. I did a, a story, uh, or I'm doing a story on it as soon as it's published, but in preparation for that story, um, in the oral argument of that case, Chief Justice John Roberts cited a 2005 Election Commission report that on which Jimmy Carter and former Secretary of State James Baker served, and they recommended at that time doing away 
with the use of absentee ballots vote by mail because it was such a huge opportunity for fraud. Well, of course, these and particularly these absentee ballots were, were so prevalent in for the possibility of fraud. What went wrong in this election process uh, was it, particularly in Georgia, the 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 secretary of state uh, prematurely certified these election results. And what he knows right now, uh, the question to him would be what you know right now. If you knew then what you know right now, which you should have known then, would you have certified the election results? The way our system is supposed to work, uh, a secretary of state doing his job would not have certified those results. I mean, if you had this evidence of chain of custody problems and now Raffensperger is saying, I can't trust the results of Fulton County today based upon our analysis of November 2020. Therefore, the state's got to take over future elections well, if you're going to make that statement about what they did in November 2020, clearly you could not certify the results out of Fulton County alone. So what should have happened? What, what was wrong? What happened? How did our institutions fail us at that time? Well, one of the reasons that they failed us at that time is because the, the Secretary of State didn't do his job certified without proper evidence, the election results, and the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, refused to hold a special session, which could have addressed it, of the state legislature, and the leadership of the state legislature. They could have held a special session on their own without the governor's sign-off. They didn't do that. So it was, well, you know the word. It was a cluster, shall we say. Is that the right word? I'll just use that part of it, right? I I, I can use that word, Scooter. I can use that word. Yeah, that that's safe. It's a safe. That's word. safe. But everybody knows the. Anyways, <laughs> if you keep explaining it, it won't be safe anymore. Thank but... you, Scooter. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. I know. <laughs> I appreciate that. It was a debacle. How about that? A debacle. And now, look, it is not just Georgia, with its 16 electoral college votes. I have a story at Breitbart at Breitbart.com published late last night uh, that says. There's a problem, ladies and gentlemen, in Wisconsin. What is that problem? They used drop boxes for absentee ballots in Wisconsin as well. Wisconsin had 10 electoral college votes. And uh, hundreds of thousands of absentee ballots were placed in drop boxes there. What's the problem with that? Well, just as was the case in Georgia, there is no state law that authorizes the use of drop boxes as a legal means for collecting absentee ballots. There was a lawsuit filed on Monday by the Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty that, quote, <clears throat> said state law provides just two methods for casting an absentee ballot and depositing an absentee ballot in a drop box is not one of those methods. Those methods are delivered through the U.S. mail or delivered in person to the municipal clerk. Now, that's very clear. That's what the statute says. And yet, because of this COVID uh, emergency, the Wisconsin Election Commission went ahead and put in drop boxes there in contravention of the law. So <clears throat> the state Supreme Court, the Wisconsin Supreme Court on Friday, rejected one lawsuit challenging that. But now a second lawsuit has been filed 
Now, think about that. I think it's pretty patently obvious that if the state law prohibits the use of drop boxes and unelected bureaucrats say, let's go ahead and use drop boxes, that there is a problem with the results of those elections. And that's exactly what happened in Wisconsin in November 2020, where Joe Biden was certified by the Secretary of State there as winner of the state's 10 Electoral College votes by a margin of less than 21,000 votes. That's not even to mention the $6 million the Mark Zuckerberg-funded Center for Technology and Civil Civic Life spent to go into five key Democrat cities and basically kick out the election administrators and privately run election administration. That, too, is, in my view, illegal. So we're headed towards uncharted waters, friends. We'll be back with the Tennessee Star Report after this. I'm Michael Patrick Leahy. To the Tennessee Star Report with your host, Michael Patrick Lane. Uh, the increase of people coming across the border who've been apprehended has gone up more than 800% in just that May over May. And in, in April, it was the exact same thing. That is Texas Governor Greg Abbott on the border yesterday with uh, former President Donald Trump talking about the crisis at the border perpetuated and created and caused by the Biden maladministration. Before we get to this, I want to have a big shout out to Clay Travis for that promo for our show. You surprised me there, Scooter. Thought I would. Thought that's what I've been working on over here. I you know that have to a, put that together every day. But. What a nice surprise. Clay yep. Travis of the uh, Clay Travis and Buck Sexton show heard at 11 a.m. 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Every Monday through Friday here on Talk Radio 98.3 and 1510 WLAC. Well, that's very nice of Clay. Thank you, Trey. Really appreciate that. Now, let's go back to Texas. Did you hear Governor Abbott saying about this huge situation uh, uh, where they're increasing the illegal aliens coming in? 800% increase since the Biden administration. I want to take you back to December 11th, 2020. Here's an article in the New York Times, and I'm going to ask you a big question about what the Supreme Court said that day. Here's the headline. A Supreme Court rejects Texas suit on the election. Actually, what they said, they said it was Supreme Court rejects Texas suit seeking to subvert election. New York Times. No bias there. Uh, here is the, the lead The Supreme Court on Friday rejected a lawsuit by Texas that had asked the court to throw out the election results in four battleground states that President Trump lost in November, ending any prospect that a, quote, brazen attempt, end quote, to use the courts to reverse his defeat at the polls would succeed. Brazen. That's the words of The New York Times. You know, no bias there. The court, in a brief unsigned order, said Texas lacks standing to pursue the case, saying it, quote, has not demonstrated 
a judicially cognizable interest in the manner in which another state conducts its elections, end quote. That has got to be one of the most idiotic statements to come from the Supreme Court in modern history. Texas did not demonstrate a judicially cognizable interest? Are you kidding me? It was inevitable that under a Biden maladministration, illegal aliens would flood Texas and cause great harm economically, in terms of crime, in terms of everything else to the state of Texas. A two-year-old could see that. Why did seven members of the Supreme Court, three of whom were appointed by Donald Trump and confirmed with a great deal of political effort by conservatives in the United States of America, how could they come to such a conclusion? You know, uh, they failed. It's very clear the Supreme Court failed. That case should have been heard. And had that case been heard, I think Texas would have absolutely been able to prove, first, their judicially cognizable interest uh, in the manner in which Georgia conducts its elections. Now, uh, I'm going to continue with the New York Times story on this. Texas's lawsuit filed directly in the Supreme Court, challenged election procedures in four states, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. It asked the court to bar those states from casting their electoral votes for Mr. Biden and to shift the selection of electors to the state legislatures. Now, that is absolutely the correct decision. They should have barred those states from casting their electoral college votes for Biden. And the state legislatures should have selected the electors. That is constitutional. Texas had standing. And the more we look at the election irregularities, now we've been reporting on those in Georgia, there's no way on God's green earth that an honest person would have certified Georgia's election results. Now, Wisconsin, 10 electoral college votes there, just showed you that um, they deployed tens of thousands, I think it was hundreds of thousands, of, uh, of absentee ballots placed in drop boxes. The law there prohibited the placement of absentee ballots in drop boxes. So, obviously, again, all four of these states, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, the election procedures there were, were unlawful. And the right choice would have been for the Supreme Court to hear the case and for the, for the Supreme Court to do exactly what Texas asked for. That would have avoided a constitutional... Uh, that would have avoided a constitutional uh, crisis. And now, then we had, of course... the. The, the number of things that went wrong in our institutional failures, just huge, just huge, just huge. That's why polls are showing an increasing number of Americans believe the Biden administration is illegitimate. And I, for one, agree wholeheartedly with that view. Stay tuned. Roger Simon, editor-in-chief, uh, or rather, uh, editor-at-large, is coming here. This is the Tennessee Star Report. I'm Michael Patrick Leahy.